singing all year long. And what may surprise you is that in Scripture, there are hymns that are embedded in Scripture. They're not easily seen except uh, Bible scholars know them, know where they are, and help us to kind of lift them out of the passage and see what the hymn writer is saying or how the writer of that book or that epistle drew that hymn out of a worship experience that was uh, being sung. And so this series uh, over the next few Sundays of Advent are hymns about Christ from the New Testament. Now, uh, scholars disagree as to what, which one of these are hymns or not. In the passage today, as a matter of fact, some will call a hymn, others will call a confession based on a hymn that John had heard. But uh, nevertheless, they are songs or confessions about Jesus Christ. Now, uh, when you see the uh, title of the sermon, you may go, what in the world is exa Jesus, E-X-E-J-E-S-U-S. Well, that isn't really a word. I remember when I was in seminary the first time that I heard the word exegesis. And the professor said, you're going to have to do an exegesis on a passage. I didn't have a clue what the word meant. Didn't know how to spell it. I figured it had the word Jesus in it somewhere because it was in seminary. But turns out it's E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. That's how you spell the word. And it simply means to explain, to explain or narrate. The professor said, this is what I want you to do. You're going to choose a passage, or he chose a passage for us. Can't recall. A passage of Scripture you're going to go through, and you need to study the language of the text and study the context, the historical context, the remote context, the immediate context of the passage. And three or four verses could yield pages of research to try to figure out what was it that that guy was trying to say. What was it that God was trying to say through John when he wrote this? What is interesting is at the very end of this passage that Barry has read, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That phrase, made him known, is where we get, is the Greek word exegesis. Jesus exegetes God. Jesus explains God. That's what John is saying. As a matter of fact, some translations say uh, he has explained him. Your translation may say it that way. So the question comes, if Jesus exegetes God, if Jesus explains God, what is is it that Jesus shows us, teaches us, narrates for us about God? What is it that Jesus teaches us? What did Jesus exegete about God by his very life? We will never fully arrive at the answer to that, but we discover three ways that Jesus exegeted God that John spells out right here. Uh, First, he says, and the word became flesh. Jesus exegeted God by becoming flesh. Here's what's interesting. John could have used different language and different terminology. John could have said, and the word referring to God in Christ In John 1, 1, 
All right, in John 1, 1 of this same book, uh, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now we're down here at verse 8, and the Word, that phrase, the Word shows up again, and the Word became flesh. John could have said the Word, the Word took on a, a human body. And if he had said that, that would be one thing. But he didn't. He said the Word became a human God became flesh. God became a person. So what does that matter? Halloween night at our house. Hundreds of kids show up at our house for Halloween. Hundreds of kids were on the main drag, and so hundreds of kids show up, and uh, these kids are showing up, and we're just having a blast handing out loads of little bags of candy, and the kids are all pumped and excited and dressed up in all their stuff when Josh and Summer Allison roll up. And their three kids, or I should say Summer and her four kids, all right? Because she's raising four. We all know that. Josh being the fourth. So Josh, who's a big burly dude, comes walking across the the, the yard with this grotesque-looking mask on. I mean, it's just gross-looking, grotesque-looking mask. He walks across the yard. Everybody's just kind of laughing or whatever. He takes it off. He sits down and talks for a little bit. Now, the night was almost over. Almost all the kids had come who wanted candy. There were just a few stragglers. It was late uh, as trick-or-treating goes. But we had a candy table set up, and there was a chair set up behind it. So Josh decides to put the mask back on. He goes over and sits behind the table. And when he does, he camouflages his hands to where it looks like that it's like a, like, a, like a dummy sitting there that we've dressed up and put the mask on it. And one of Trent's friends, his name is Quantavian, he's in the fifth grade, plays football with Trent. Quantavian shows up late for trick-or-treating. And he struts, he always does, he struts down the sidewalk. And he sees the basket of candy, and he goes straight for the basket of candy, puts his hand in there when Josh comes alive. And when Josh comes alive with the mask on, Quantavian screams, turns, throws his whole bucket of candy, and runs down the sidewalk. It's hilarious. Scares him absolutely to death. Everybody's laughing on the front porch. It's, it's a funny moment. Do you know what Josh does? He simply... Slips off the mask, lets Quantavia know he's just Josh Allison. He's not that grotesque feature that, that he looked like. When John says God became a man, John is not saying that God put on a mask of humanity that at his ascension he could take off. It was an irreversible decision to never not be man again. There was no way when Jesus came through the birth canal of Mary that he would ever not be man after that. What does that mean? Every temptation you faced, he faced. He dealt with fear like you. He experienced rejection as you have. He got hungry. He got sleepy. He got angry. He became irritated, frustrated. He did all of that without sinning. 
but he felt all of it as deeply as any human being will feel any of those emotions. God became man. He still is. Jesus is still fully human in heaven today and fully God in heaven today interceding for you. He still knows how you feel. He still knows what you're experiencing. He he knows it all. Now, John faced a teaching in his day because it seemed heretical, and it was according to the teaching of today, to say that God would become a man, that God would become a human being. And so it was called docetism. It's from the word to seem, uh, meaning that the the docetists taught that Jesus only seemed to be a man. He only appeared to be a man. He really wasn't a man. He just had man-like characteristics. John is saying, no, right here, it's irrefutably stated. He became flesh. He became one of you. Well, how does that exegete God? Maybe you've never thought that God is truly humble. He's humble. That he would condescend to become one of us is a mark of true humility. Jesus exegeted God. By becoming a man. Number two, Jesus exegeted God by dwelling among men. Well, what if he had become man and just remained aloof, just remained distant, just kind of watched from a distance and said, okay, I'm one of you, but I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm over here. I'm not really one of you. But, but John carefully chooses a word here. Dwelt. It's the word uh, related to the Hebrew word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Every Hebrew reading this, every Jew reading this, uh, their mind is immediately going to go where? Their mind is going to go to the Old Testament and to the history of their people. When Israel left out of Egypt, traveled down to the Sinai Peninsula, and there Moses met with God, and then they were to go up into the plains of Moab. All right, an 11-day journey, 11 days. Eleven days it should have taken them to get from the Sinai Peninsula up to the plains of Moab. Took them how long? Forty years. Forty years. An 11-day journey turns into 40 years. Why? Because the people were disobedient. That's why it turned into 40 years. But here is the question. Did God abandon them during their 40 years of wandering? No. As a matter of fact, he instructed Moses. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to set up a tabernacle. Uh, Set it up here in the midst of the people. It will be a temporary meeting place. Set it up. And so Moses followed the instructions to a T as God told him to do. And once the tabernacle was constructed and there was this makeshift holy of holies, God's presence came down in the form of a cloud And Israel would look in their midst as they wandered, and they'd say, he's here. God is here. 
that only foreshadowed David's son Solomon who would get to build that massive temple. I mean, huge, amazing temple. David's son Solomon would get to build this massive temple and in that he would build a a grander holy of holies, a nine-inch thick curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. And there David, uh, Solomon built that. And while it was grand and amazing, Solomon's prayer, beautiful prayer, was grateful that the presence of God was pleased to dwell there. And when Solomon prayed, cloud came down over the Holy of Holies in the temple. And the people looked and they said, He's here. He is here. That was only a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ in flesh. And Paul would say, you are the temple. You're it. God who once dwelled in his glory in this holy of holies, uh, in a makeshift tabernacle now in this more permanent but not permanent uh, temple now wants to dwell in you and you live forever, incidentally. Your life doesn't end at your death. It really only begins there. This is like the prelude to life. So God, God lives inside believers. Wow, that's unbelievable. Jesus exegeted God by dwelling, tabernacling among us. You say, Jerry, what what does this explain about God? God has this insatiable desire to hang out with you. Ever since the garden, he, he longs to be with you. He longs to spend time with you. He, he longs for you. But John doesn't stop there. And he says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus exegetes God by grace in man with God's glory. So our glory is an interesting word, isn't it? The word glory means weight or weightiness. And we struggle to define the word. We struggle to explain it to somebody. How do you explain Glory, how do you define it? You might say that if you're an Alabama fan after last night, some glory slipped away, right? Last play, there was some glory. There's great glory to Alabama football because they've won so many games. But then when Auburn had that last, that glory slipped away, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day who said, why are the Dallas Cowboys considered America's team? That's a good question. And, and I said, why do you ask? He said, well, they seldom win. Um, you know, lots of drama. Yes, all of that. But at some point, evidently, in the history of the Cowboys, there was glory. Maybe they used to win more than they win now. Uh, so glory is influence. It's, it's, it's still hard to put your finger on. But John says, we have seen his glory. Well, Moses wanted to see that too. 
And in Exodus 33, verse 18, 17, 18 through there, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And he said, I, God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God defined his glory to Moses. What does he say his glory is? He says, I will make all my, what? Goodness pass before you. God's glory is his goodness. As a matter of fact, he goes on to give further explanation when he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is saying, my glory is my mercy and my grace. Now, when it actually happened, verses 5 through 7 of 34... The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, so God is speaking, the Lord, the Lord, a God, here we go again, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God, when he showed Moses his glory, showed Moses what? What does it say? A God merciful. This is God talking about himself. A God merciful and gracious. God's glory is his goodness. So Jesus exegeted God by grace in man with God's glory. How did he do it? Remember the woman at the well, Samaritan. So she's despised because she is a Samaritan. When the Assyrians came in from the north and overran Israel, the men hung out and and married Israelite women and produced offspring. And the Israelites hated them because those people's ancestors destroyed Israel. She was a Samaritan, so she was hated because of her, of her lineage. Secondly, she was a woman, and a woman was never spoken to by a rabbi in Jesus' day. So Jesus is breaking that rule. He's talking to a Samaritan, but he's talking to a woman who is a Samaritan. But third of all, it's noon when Jesus encounters her there. It's noon, and being noon... She's drawing water, and it was hot, and women didn't draw water at noontime unless you wanted to avoid all the other women who came early in the morning to draw in the cool of the morning. Why would she want to avoid all them? Well, Jesus revealed that when he told her to go get her husband, and she said, I'm single. All right, probably half of this service is single. Half of you are. He says, I'm single. She says that. Jesus said, no, you're not. 
You've been married five times and the man you're with now isn't even your husband. No, she was a loose, living, cheating, Samaritan woman that Jesus spoke to. She goes running back into the town, this woman who did her daily walk of shame uh, with water pitcher on her now runs back into the town out loud and says, come see a man who's told me everything I've done. Isn't he the Messiah? Jesus, exegeted God, came full of grace and truth, John says. Mercy and grace in the Old Testament. Grace and truth in the New Testament. Jesus exegeted God. How about the woman dragged in front of him, caught in the act of adultery? The reality that she was caught in the act of adultery by these religious zealots means that when they dragged her in front of Jesus, she was most likely naked. The guy that she was with was somewhere in the shadows. Nobody dragged him in, and they're testing Jesus. She's simply an object lesson for their, for their law, and, 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 and they're testing Jesus. And so they say, doesn't the law require that we stone her? She was caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus pauses for a moment. He looks at this woman who lies there naked in front of him in shame, and he looks at those Pharisees around her, and he looks at them, and he says, he who is without sin, let him be the first one to cast a stone. And he stoops down and he draws in the sand. And when they hear his words and read his words, they turn and one by one walk away. And he looks at this destitute, naked uh, prostitute of a woman and says, where are your accusers? And she said, Lord, I have none. And Jesus, being full of grace, said, Neither do I condemn you. And being full of truth, said, Go and sin no more. Grace, there is no condemnation. Truth, there should be no more sin either. How about Nicodemus? The Samaritan's woman is John chapter 4. Nicodemus is John chapter 3. The Samaritan woman comes in broad daylight. Nicodemus comes at night. Why? He's a religious dude. He's big time religious. And if he's seen with Jesus, his reputation is gone. So he comes to Jesus at night. This is, he, he comes and he, he has questions. Do you know what I love? Never in the account did Jesus look at him and say, listen, you intellectual, you religious zealot. If you want to hang out with me, why don't you do it in broad daylight, chicken? He didn't say that. I realize that between the two services here, we have uh, intellectual folks, uh, uh, doubters, skeptics every Sunday. This is where you are. I'm glad you're here. Please come every single Sunday. Ask me every question in the book. This is where you belong. Right, church? Glad you're here. So Jesus engages Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus leaves that nighttime conversation only to return in broad daylight when all the disciples have fled. Jesus is dead. And somebody's got to bury his body. So Nicodemus, who's, who's buddies with Joseph of Arimathea, the two of them show up in broad daylight. And get this, much harder to believe in a dead Jesus than in a live one. Jesus' disciples who were with him until he died fled. Nicodemus, who came to him by night, came out in broad daylight when Jesus was dead and said, let me, let me help bury him. Jesus exegeted God by grace in man with God's glory. He confronted sin and loved the sinner. He he said, this is sin and this is truth. And John would write about it because what is so ironic is that Jesus' worst moments were his most glorious. John 12, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, the hour, speaking of his crucifixion, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What was Jesus saying? Let me, let me just change the vegetable. Let me just change it for a moment or change the, the seed. Let's say a corn, kernel of corn. We, we don't see much wheat around here, but we do see corn. A kernel of corn. Look at it. Yes, you could pop the thing maybe and eat it. But what if you took that kernel and put it into the ground? Just a few months later, that stalk comes up and you have entire ears of corn. Where's, where's the glory? In the kernel? No. In the stalk with the ears. Jesus said, my most glorious moment is going to be my worst. It's going to be when I die. My most glorious moment is when I'm going to be mocked and spit upon and I'm going to be tied to a whipping post and they're going to rip me to shreds. That will be my most glorious moment. I'm going to exegete God. I'm going to explain God and this is how I'm going to do it. They're going to beat me until I almost die and they're going to put a cross beam on my shoulders. I'll carry that up the hill. My most glorious moment is when they pound these spikes into my hands and feet and and drop me into this hole and rip me to shreds and, and mock me and pull my beard and give me vinegar instead of water to drink. You see, Christianity isn't a glamorous religion about a glamorous leader who did amazing things. Ironically, Christianity is a relationship with a glorified, gruesomely crucified God who became man. Jesus' most glorious moment was his worst. Jesus exegeted God by grace and man with God's glory. Chapter 13, very next chapter of John, verse 31. We see it again. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now the Son of Man is glorified. When? When I die. And God will be glorified. When? When I die. 
It's a strange view of the glory of God, isn't it? What is the result of it? I love it. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, commentators struggle to figure out what in the world does this phrase, grace upon grace, mean? What does it mean? That we have received grace upon grace, and they come at two, different, two main different places, so I'll tell you where I land, just from my study where I land. I think the word upon really means instead of. Say, so what? Grace instead of grace? Yeah, it does sound weird. Like, what if you went to McDonald's and you ordered a Big Mac? And you go and you eat like half of the Big Mac and you go back up to the counter and you say, hey, I'd like to have a Big Mac instead of this one. They're going to look at you like, you just got one Big Mac. Why do you want another one? Well, I want a Big Mac instead of a Big Mac. And they're going to look at you like you're an idiot, as they should. So if this means grace instead of grace, why is John talking about it? I think the clue is in the very next verse, and from his, uh, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law in the Pharisees' hands was not gracious, but the law from God's point of view was gracious. Why? It said this is what you can do and what you can't do. In order to stay within these boundaries, the law was gracious. The law graciously said, this is right and this is wrong. The law graciously said, this is what you should do and what you shouldn't do. The law was an act of grace. But Jesus Christ is a different kind of grace. And when Christ came, we received grace instead of grace. The grace of Christ instead of the grace of the law. This is what I think Paul was saying in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. What does he say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, here's one law, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sin and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. What does Paul say? Paul says, here's one law, here's another. There's, there's the law of sin and death, and there's the law of spirit of life in Christ. And because of the law of the spirit of life in Christ, you're not condemned anymore. You're not. What does that mean? When you come to Christ, your sins are covered, paid for. There is therefore now no condemnation. So the gracious law that made you realize you needed Christ is replaced by the grace of Christ which takes all of the condemnation out of the law, sucks it out, and covers you with the blood of Christ. And that empowers you to live this life that you never dreamed possible. And then John sums up what we've just said. No one has ever seen God. Jesus made him known. I grew up in a very different way than most every one of you. Not all of you, because I see some people who grew up the way I did. My sister's in here. But we grew up with no television. Right? None. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But we grew up with no television, never listened to secular music at all. I thought the Beatles were green things that, you know, flew around in the yard. 
Beach Boys were lifeguards or something, all right? So I didn't know anybody who anybody was. Never heard a secular song until I went to college. No lie, ever in my life. No television ever until I went to college. So what that meant is that we were connected to the radio. We listened to the radio a lot. And there was a guy that the older folks in the room are going to know who he is as soon as I say his name. And I couldn't wait to hear his little vignettes. They would be sometimes one minute and sometimes three or four minutes. His name was Paul Harvey. All right? Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey always had something good to say and, and, and great storyteller. And I remember hearing this story when I was a teenager that Paul Harvey told. And I thought this week, I've got to find it, and I did. But Paul Harvey said that there was a kind farmer. Loved his wife, loved his kids, but did not believe in Christ, did not believe in the incarnation. It was Christmas Eve. His wife, who was a believer, told him they were going to Christmas Eve service. He kindly looked at her and said, you know, I don't believe. I can't go. So she headed out with the children to Christmas Eve service. She had been gone for a little while when the guy was settling into the living room. He built a fire. He looked out and saw a flurry of snow that turned into flakes of snow that turned into accumulation of snow. As he sat there in the warm room by the fire, he heard a thump and then a thud and then another thump and then another. And he thought, someone's throwing snowballs at the window. And he got up to look out the window. And when he did, he saw birds lying there. And he thought, they're trying to get in the warm. They're freezing. So he quickly put his coat on, put his galoshes on, bundled up and headed out because he thought of the barn where he kept the kid's pony and he went to the barn and flung open both barn doors. It was warm in there and the birds would be safe from this winter storm that was moving in as the snow was already accumulating. And so he went and began to shoo the birds toward the barn. And every time he would walk toward the birds, the birds would do what birds do when humans walk toward them, which is fly away from him. And the more he tried, the less successful he was. And he thought, I, I've got this warm place. I can take care of these birds. If I could only get them into the safety of the barn, but they're afraid of me. And then he thought to himself, you know, if only I could become a bird. If I could speak their language, if they could understand me like I understand them right now, then they'd listen. They'd go into the barn. And as he had that thought, 
the bells of the church rang and he fell to his knees. Jesus exegeted God not by putting on the mask of humanity but by becoming one of us. And with arms spread open wide from the cross, he says, I'm speaking your language. I'm dying your death for your sins. Would you come in? Let's pray. We're going to sing a song that we've sung already. And the song is really a guttural cry to God. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. There are two groups of people who need to sing this this morning. The first are you who are lost in your sins and you need to cry out to him that you need him. You need him. That there is no other way to heaven but through Christ who died for you. But then there are believers in the room who've trekked along on this journey and you become, practically speaking, in a place where you don't realize you need God. You're spinning your wheels and you just need to cry out. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. God, we do. Thank you, Jesus, that you became one of us and you sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even now. Jesus, thank you for explaining God. While we don't fully get it, wow, we know him better than we did before you came. What the law weakened by the flesh could not do, you did by sending, Father, your own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And Jesus, when you died, you you took the condemnation, the guilt, the shame of our sin on yourself that we may walk in freedom from guilt and shame as we renounce our sin and receive you as our Savior. Oh, we need you. We are desperately lost without you. You are our one defense, our righteousness, Jesus. We sing this with conviction and clarity and maybe even despair, but determination. In your name, amen. Let's stand. I'll be here. Andrew will be here. Josh will be here. We'd love to pray with you. Let's worship the Lord. Sing out the words of this song.
God's people say? Amen. Amen. Wow, we need him. We need him. If you have children next door, feel free to trek uh, and get those kids now to give you a little, uh, little jump start on that. Chairs don't need to come down today because we'll use them tonight. So you can leave chairs right where they are today. If you'll help, though, by grabbing the pens and grabbing any papers and taking those with you out, Bill, uh, who's standing right back there, will take care of those pens for you. That would help uh, him and the rest of the crew tremendously. God bless you.